Hi, and welcome to the PhD Talk podcast. I am Eva, a civil engineering professor and blogger on the side. And I'm Rico, a PhD student in civil engineering. Join us on this podcast in which we discuss all topics related to PhD life, research mechanics, and lived experiences. There will be interviews and discussions with guest researchers and PhD students. We hope you stick around with us on the PhD Talk podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the PhD Talk podcast. This is episode 44 and we are going to talk about some research that colleagues of mine and myself did on the impact of COVID-19 on academic parents as well as some of my personal experiences as an academic parent during this COVID pandemic. So with that said, um, the first topic that we were going to discuss for today is the actual paper, which we will link in the show notes, which is titled Challenges and Opportunities for Academic Parents During COVID-19, which I co-authored with colleagues from all sides of the world who are academic parents as well. And just to give a little bit of background, we were interested in the effect of COVID-19 on academic parents as they are working from home, homeschooling children or assisting children who have a virtual schooling going on and at the same time having to make the switch to online or remote teaching. So we, in our own experiences, saw that that was quite a squeeze and we wanted to learn a bit more about that and, and see what really who is most affected, how large the effect is. So that's a bit of the background to the paper. And uh, I know that Rico had a look at the paper as well. So Rico, yeah. what, did you, what did you find interesting or surprising in there? Yeah, so I found the paper very interesting and very timely. Before we get into sort of the content of the paper, I'm curious, because you're, of course, a, a structural engineering researcher. And this is, um, I guess this would fall under the category of like a sociology uh, or a social sciences sort of thing. And I wonder how did you broach that topic? Like how, how did, that's such a, a vast difference from what you normally do. I wonder how did you get into that? Is it because you had perhaps a, like a friend that was in this sort of research domain or like, can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, sure. And I think you already hinted at the the solution there, which oh, is uh, find people who, who are knowledgeable on the topic. Sure. So one of the first people that I reached out to, one of the co-authors, Kathleen Lehmanns, is uh, my long-term friend. We've, we went to school together and she uh, has a PhD in, in psychology and uh, uh, medical sociology. So I reached out to her. She used to be the TA of... Uh, statistics uh, okay that's how she rolled into academia at at, uh, at some point so i knew that she was going to be the right person to to see which statistical tests to use and all that and then i also looked within my personal network people who could be interested in the topic who from their fields could be um, bringing their light to the methods and uh, we had a lot of discussions through zoom how to approach it because it's a very broad topic and which methods to use so i think the the, the right way to go there is to, to surround yourself with uh, with the right people and to have especially for something that is as broad and maybe not a standard research topic to have a, a more interdisciplinary team mm -hmm. yeah i'm curious about that because it's, it's already so difficult to publish in your own domain and i'm sure a lot of uh, our listeners Listeners are inherently curious, and so they would love to branch out into different domains. And I guess mm -hmm. that's the way to go about it: is you have an idea, 
and uh, find find people that are experts in that subfield, mm-hmm. I guess. Yes, right. and I, I think in addition to that, before that, I had started a research project on the impact of the or the impact of the doctoral defense format on how doctoral candidates experience the defense. And before I started that topic, I did sit with a a few books on really the use of qualitative and quantitative methods, and I looked outside of the range of methods that I usually use to to see how should I approach this. So I, I had done that methods reading before, but I mm-hmm. I hadn't come to the point of analyzing the data because of the pandemic. So. Sure. Yeah. So you figured might as well address that directly, you know, yes. address the pandemic directly. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, so digging into, I guess, uh, some of the content of the paper um what was the the methodology that you used how did you figure out what the challenges and opportunities were for academic parents yeah so the first thing that we did we used a survey to mm-hmm. gather data from academic parents and of course to know how to set up the survey what we did is we um it, it's not a standard type of survey you have standard surveys about well-being you have standard surveys about um about the number of topics there are standard surveys, but we didn't have any standard survey to pull from. So we organized the survey around certain topics, such as really the impact on research and teaching, the experience of work-life balance of academic parents during the pandemic, childcare we put as a as a separate topic as well. And those are the topics that we actually found in the literature as being the topics that most papers address as these are particular challenges for academic parents. And most of the literature deals with academic mothers in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, so we we first explored the literature to have an idea of what are the things that we actually want to ask about. And then we designed a survey around that. Okay. And how many respondents did you get from the survey? And how did you go about like like disseminating the survey? Yeah, um, I don't exactly recall. It's a hundred something respondents, I think we had after filtering the data. And we did have a lot of people starting the survey, but we found that our survey was quite long. It took on average roughly 20 minutes to complete because it was quite detailed. And we did find that a lot of people gave up halfway. So that made the data analysis a bit more tricky. Okay. And then in terms of finding the the respondents, what we did is we called for participation through Twitter by emailing people that we know who are academic parents by sharing the survey on LinkedIn and asking for collaboration. And uh, the having the international research team with people from five different continents also helped us to get a more distributed participation mm-hmm. of the respondents themselves. Okay, of course. Yeah, that's that's one of the benefits of your... I'm just looking at the universities and the affiliations of your authors and uh, you know, mm-hmm. Singapore, Netherlands, Australia, Brussels, so all over United States. So all over the place and yourself, of course, in South America. So and then I wonder, was there any limitations on your uh, on the data that you received? Like what were the demographics? Was it more women that tend to respond? We had slightly more women and a vast majority of respondents self-identified as white. So we don't have uh, that much data of 
other minorities. And the other limitation is that we also asked for the like relationship or co-parenting status of the respondents. And we found that the vast majority were co-parenting with the other parent. And so we, we had very few single parents in the respondents. And we also saw that of the few single parents who started the survey, mm-hmm. the vast majority dropped off somewhere halfway. So we can speculate what happened there and maybe that they had even more pressure on their time than those who have uh, another pair of hands helping out. Yeah, I could imagine that that's, I could mm-hmm. imagine them getting halfway through the survey and then their, their child or their children needed their attention. So, mm-hmm. uh, so that was a bit about the, the methodology and the respondents of the survey. And uh, I wonder, so what was the big... What were the big takeaways from the survey and from your analysis of it? Yeah, some some of the main findings. The the first main finding is that the negative impact on research is quite large. We we ask people to to identify whether being an academic parent during COVID nineteen has had an extremely negative, somewhat negative, neutral, somewhat positive or extremely positive impact. And the very, very vast majority of the answers were in the category of extremely negative and somewhat negative. So the scale really tips towards the the negative side. We did title the paper Challenges and Opportunities. Uh, One of our goals was not to make the article really a list of everything that was awful about the pandemic. We were... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we were actively looking for the silver lining there and we explicitly had questions about the opportunities of the pandemic and they were very much outnumbered by the challenges and the, what people identified as difficulties. And so, yeah, it, it was... A... So you made an attempt to be like biased towards positivity and despite that, like the, the pandemic <laughs> beat you down there with, with the negative mm-hmm, outcomes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess that's uh, to be expected. I mean, of course. It- and I think what one of the respondents actually put it very elegantly in words, and I, I don't re- recall the exact words of the quote, but mm-hmm. what this respondent said is the pandemic already has a very negative impact on research, anything that comes to data collection, etc. And being a parent during this time and having schools closed and having to figure out childcare and, and schooling of, of the child at the same time just makes everything so much more complicated. Speaking of those additional responsibilities, I see that there was a huge increase in uh, in childcare <laughs> time spent on childcare, which mm-hmm. you know is, is expected. But I wasn't expecting this high of an increase. So, seventy six percent increase in time spent on childcare compared to pre COVID nineteen. So that's that's huge. I guess all these all the children are, are at home. So we see as well one of the questions or one of the um, topics that we looked at in the questions with regard to childcare modalities is we listed all possible childcare modalities that we could think of before the pandemic, then during lockdown, and then during partial release of restrictions or during reopening, how you want to call it. And even yeah. at reopening, at the at least at the time of the survey, and of course, that's, that's a bit of a, a difficult topic because reopening means a different thing in every country. And some countries are reopening, some others are on lockdown. So those definitions are, are not set in stone. 
But we did find that parents had much more modalities to lean on before the pandemic than during lockdown, which is very limited. And at partial reopening, there's still a lot that is restricted, like, especially after school activities. Those, mm. Even when schools have reopened, the after school activities may not have reopened. We also found uh, research from United States where they looked at after-school activities in particular, and they found that many actually ran out of funding, had to close, went bankrupt, etc. So just the options of splitting out childcare across different modalities, those options are still very restricted for most academic parents and parents in general. Oh, wow. That's something that I hadn't even thought of. Of course, I'm not a parent, so I wouldn't, you know, I'm not so privy to all the different situations. But yeah, I could imagine childcare after school was a big part of my childhood. And so that, that must have gotten completely eliminated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then some of the other findings, one of them that really surprised me uh, was that on gender. So can you tell me a little bit about what you found? Yes. And uh, of course, before going into those findings, I just want to have a, a short side note here that we did include those or the option for those who do not self-identify as men or women to check that in the in the survey. And we also actually had only two respondents in that category. So we can't really say much about that. So we have put that reflection in the paper, but then most of our results are either from academic mothers or academic fathers. So we found when we look at the results on impact on research, work-life balance, etc., then we could not see a significant difference between academic mothers and academic fathers. And that may come as quite a surprise because most of the literature on academic parents in the past really focused on academic mothers. Mm-hmm. So we, we found from the literature that when looking at the impact of becoming a parent on academics, then for women becoming a mother as an academic typically has a negative impact on their career, especially if you're looking at the potential of getting tenure, then academic mothers are less likely to gain tenure. Whereas on the opposite hand, when we have academic fathers, it seems like their careers are boosted by it. And generally, most of the literature has looked at academic mothers in particular, because in general, the hours that mothers spend on childcare, as well as household chores from time diary studies and time logs, we know that that is larger uh, than male counterparts, whether it's their co-parents or whether it's a a male academic who who also has children. So, and the other part is as well as then culturally, at, at least in the West, there is more expectations of moms to do things as in baking the cupcakes and whatnot because there's been this uh, what's called uh, intensive mothering script that has developed that was not so much uh, prevalent in say the 1970s but that has really been growing in the last decades that uh, there's this higher expectations of what it means to be a, a good mother mm-hmm. and that has uh, sparked a lot of research on academic mothers and the challenges they face Mm -hmm. and we expected previously that we would see differences between academic mothers and academic fathers but that's not what the data showed Um, Mm -hmm. we did see some if you look at the time logs for example we included time logs on um, estimating how much time the academic parents spend before and during the pandemic on certain activities such as work and sleep and leisure for themselves and household and and childcare. And we do see differences before the pandemic, but we see during the pandemic, the impact or the reduction in 
time for themselves, especially, is uh, as large for academic mothers as fathers. The mm -hmm. only difference that we had in the time logs is that overall the academic mothers still had a little bit less time in their week to work as compared to the fathers. But on all the other categories, as in impact on the research, uh, perceived work-life balance, things like that, we did not see differences in gender. Yeah, for all the reasons you mentioned, that's really surprising to me. Uh, and hopefully, hopefully this leads to, again, we're, we're trying to shoehorn some positivity into the pandemic, but hopefully it leads to some more equal parenting, you know, where possible and where the, the circumstances allow more equality and more like, you know, a changing of the paradigm. Hopefully the, the men in positions of power realize now that, wait a second, look how much my life was affected. My, my wife or my, the mother of my children here has this all the time. <laughs> and so hopefully it leads to some benefits after the pandemic i guess mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i think it's it's partially because of the like the forced situations and academics can work and teach from home well they had to they had to find a way yeah. around it and i i think what was identified as well by some of the respondents is if their partner works out outside of the house whether that's a a male or female partner, the one who is working from home is the one who, at the end of the day, is cooped up at home with the kids. So I think that was a major effect as well, the, being the one who is working from home, especially if the other partner is uh, outside of the house for work. I think we had a, we have a quote in there of, of somebody who says, well, my partner is a, is a physician, so she is not there. I'm the one who is at home and the kids are at home. So naturally, the more of the, the child care falls on me. Yeah, yeah, of course. In your survey and in the, the analysis of it, you differentiated between the different categories of, uh, or what should I say, levels of, of researchers, I guess. So, you know, PhD candidates, postdocs, associate, assistant, full professor, etc. And so I wonder, did you notice any differences between those job titles? Mm -hmm. Yes, we did. And uh, of course, when it comes to the impact on research and the impact on teaching, we see that that's, of course, related to the job package, so to say, of the different people. So mm -hmm. our PhD candidates may have had uh, less impact on teaching because potentially they're not teaching and they express more concerns with regard to their research, especially those who are on uh, running out of funding. Um, so they express certainly more concerns in terms of the impact on their research, as well as the financial constraints that they may be experiencing. Mm -hmm. And the other finding that we had is that of say the levels from the ranks of tenure, uh, assistant, associate, full professors. There we found that the associate professors are actually the ones that had the most negative experience. And we've been trying to reflect back on, on, on the data to see what could explain this. And we did not find from the data itself an explanation as to why it is the associate professors that have the largest effect we tried to see if it's maybe also related to the age of the children mm -hmm. but it wasn't it wasn't necessarily that the associate professors are in a certain age brackets and thus have a certain age bracket of children that was not the case mm -hmm. so what we have been speculating is that it could potentially be because at the level of full professors somebody may have more people in their lab than support work that may not have those care responsibilities that parents have so they may be able to spread out the impact of the pandemic more 
than somebody who is at the associate level rank. And for the assistant professors, potentially it could be because they're still building up their research and may not have that many projects going on at the same time, may not be supervising that many PhD candidates to, at the same time. So we are just speculating because we also found that in other reference, it was called the mid-career squeeze or the double whammy that the associate <laughs> professors get and add a pandemic to that and become to a triple whammy. So. Sure. <laughs> It, it's already something that others have identified in the past that associate professors, even though they got their tenure and we would expect, well, they're relaxed, they have still the same pressures as, a, as somebody on the tenure track, but then more responsibilities and perhaps more administrative roles as well. So it's, uh, it's, it's still a struggle for them. And then a pandemic on top. Yeah, I guess they're adjusting to their new role, I guess. I don't want to say new role because it's not to say that they're all brand new associate professors. Mm-hmm. From building up your own profile on the tenure track and, and establishing yourself as a, as a researcher. And then at the associate professor level, people have more additional responsibilities and that, that can be a struggle. And then with the pandemic on top of that, that made that there's very little time for them left to do research and, and write. Mm-hmm. There is one other finding um, where you differentiated between the, the geographic location of the parents. And did you notice any big differences between uh, where the parents were located? Yeah, one of the findings is that, especially in the Americas and then Central and South American in particular, 95% of the academic parents worry about sending their children back to school or daycare. And if we compare that, for example, to the results in Europe, those much less of our academic parents in Europe were worried about sending their kids back to school. Mm-hmm. So that's a, a, a very large difference in really in the locations and regions that we found. Yeah. Do you attribute that mostly to just the fact that like the, the vaccine rollout was probably delayed a little bit um, in, in, in different parts of the world? or At time of gathering the data, which was uh, roughly about a year ago, yeah. um, we nobody had vaccines at that time. Okay. I think it's... Uh, it's hard to say what really what's really the cause of it, and we also didn't speculate that much about it in in the paper. I can only sort of pull from personal experience and like the sentiment that I that I've noticed of my friends in Europe as compared to the sentiment in Ecuador itself, as I have to speak for Ecuador. I think one of the drivers is well, there's two things, and the first one is transportation to the schools and the second one is the really the access to healthcare and the cost of of quality healthcare i think mm-hmm. in belgium or the netherlands i wouldn't worry too much if i get sick if that what financial impact that's going to have whereas uh, in ecuador i'm very lucky that i have uh, an additional private insurance from my university and then my university has a hospital and a healthcare center but for many people having access to quality healthcare which many cases means private hospitals is very expensive so there is the trying to shelter as much as possible because you just don't want to get sick and want to have potentially get into having to find healthcare. Uh, I think part of it has also been the access to PCR tests. I was in Belgium and the Netherlands uh, just now, and I could just, you know, schedule a PCR test and I had to be tested to travel, et cetera. And I know that in in Belgium and the Netherlands, it is covered by the government and you don't have to pay for it. Whereas in Ecuador, it's a private expense and it's a 
done by private laboratories and it's it's expensive it's a, of course i don't recall the exact amount now but it's at least over 70 dollars per per test and in a, a country with with a basic income of 400 dollars a month that's that's very hefty. Yeah. So I think people were just trying to avoid as much as possible to get into contact with the virus in, in any way possible. Mm-hmm. And the other element would be the transportation. And I think that most children in Ecuador either have to get dropped off by their parents to get mm-hmm. to school by car, or they take the school bus and then the school bus is potential exposure to other children who are not in their class group. So it's a, an additional source of exposure there. And in terms of getting dropped off, we had, and we still have restrictions on which licensed tags can drive on which days. So there's a, oh, okay. there's that complication there on the logistics. Like if, if you can't take your car, then you have to send them with somebody else. And that means, again, being in contact with somebody else. And yeah, so there's that whole whole part Ah, see, I didn't even think of that. Like we, that that's foreign to me. That there would be a restriction on like which, uh, who can drive on which days. Okay, yeah. See, I didn't even think of that when you mentioned transportation. I wasn't really sure what, how that would factor into things, but I could see now that that would mm-hmm. make a difference there. So that's the uh, the paper side of things. Or the article challenges and opportunities for academic parents during COVID nineteen. We'll we'll post a link to that in the show notes. I also want to talk a little bit about your personal experiences. So getting away from maybe uh, academic rigor, but more talking anecdotally about your experiences. The the findings of the report line up with what you found uh, raising a daughter in, during the pandemic? Yeah, I, I, in, in general terms, it's uh, it's had a, a negative impact on my research, so that's not, <laughs> not a surprise. Would you say it's somewhat negative impact, a neutral impact? or? I think it sits, for me, it sits at a somewhat negative, as in I mm-hmm. have been able to do some research and get some publications going, but I haven't yep. been able to go to the lab in the Netherlands. And yeah. Partially because, of course, the general pandemic, but also if I would be going to the lab in the Netherlands and I take my daughter along, then I have to arrange childcare in the Netherlands, which at this moment uh, I haven't been able to, to find a, a reasonable solution yet. And hopefully next summer then it will be possible again. Mm-hmm. So I think for me it's, it's at a... Yeah, the somewhat negative. Sure. Yeah. So it lines up with what uh, what you're seeing in the in the report, right? Or yes. in the paper. And then the impact on teaching. I, I think we've we've done a, an episode on on teaching virtually and teaching oh, during yeah. the pandemic. So we've we've touched on the topic before. And what I think I've learned a lot from it. I do miss seeing my students face to face. So it, it's not the same. And mm-hmm. it just took a lot of time. So it, it crowded out other things. Yeah, trying to learn. And, and we spoke about all the different iterations that you went through to mm-hmm. find a, an effective teaching technique. So I can imagine that takes up a lot of your time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and just preparing all the new material. I, I was teaching whiteboard and markers, so I, I didn't have any PowerPoint slides or anything. So it was a, a lot of new stuff to develop. Yeah, so those are the, the big challenges that you faced. And what about um, your university? Did you find you received the support that you wanted? If there were another pandemic in, in a few years, let's let's keep our fingers crossed that that doesn't happen. But what would be your recommendations? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And I, I have to talk for two universities here. So yeah. the, the first one, Universidad San Francisco de Quito here in Ecuador. One of the things that they did is they set up a support group for academic parents. 
So they had, uh, I think, a bi-weekly Zoom meeting for working moms and dads uh, to really come together and, uh, and and talk about it. I actually have never been able to join because the scheduled Zoom time was over- always overlapped with some of my research meetings. So I, I, I have never been able to join that Zoom call. But the fact that they have a space for it does say that they are aware of the of the challenges. When it comes to considering like the annual evaluation procedure, that one was not changed. Um, now we do have not a very extensive annual review. So it's not really like, oh, you were going to publish six papers and you only published five. So now you, you did not uh, live up to the experiences. It's more a system where we write about uh, what we're most proud of, what we achieved, what was our largest struggle the last year, as well as, as how we have been, and now I have to translate from Spanish in my head real quick, but the, the three pillars of the university are truth, goodness, and beauty and they always ask us how we align or how our work in that year has aligned with the three pillars of university so that's a a very broad question as well but the general way in which the the review is done is there's there's no hard targets of i'm going to publish as many papers and if you don't achieve it then you get some kind of a punishment or whatnot so it's uh because many people have spoken about the effect on on tenure and promotion or annual evaluations and that something that for me was not so much an issue for Universidad San Francisco de Quito. Mm-hmm. Then for TU Delft, I think that TU Delft also recognized that in general, after a long time of working from home, that many people were struggling. So they set up this uh, wellness part within the, the website, like the internal website for the employees and the uh, and that includes the PhD candidates. And they have set up trainings on how to remain mentally, physically well during the pandemic. So they, they also recognize that it's been a difficult time. They also have done some monitoring to see how we experience the work pressure and they do this regularly so they could also see what the impact of the pandemic was. So they're aware of uh, the situation. And then what they did to address that is they changed the way that the annual evaluation was done. Usually it does have a, a very extensive annual evaluation where you look at your goals from the last year and it's really hard to, hard goals in terms of I'm going to publish this many papers, I'm going to teach this, I'm going to apply for this funding, etc. And they they said, well, the system is still there, but we're not going to ask you to fill it out to the same level as you usually do because it takes a lot of time. You usually have to fill out the, the full form on the platform and then add attachments to prove the things that you did or to upload oh, your okay. list of publications or to uh, show your student evaluations. You have to like upload a lot of background material there. And they said this year, just sure. uh, focus on the basics don't spend too much time on it and have a conversation with with your superior the the one person in rank above you which uh, in, in my case was the head of the department because we didn't have a, a head of our research group at the time mm-hmm. and so the idea was to just have a conversation about how we're doing and uh, uh, how it's been etc and not to really have those okay you said you were going to six to publish six papers and it's only five what happened there and okay. <laughs> so Mm-hmm. <laughs> the answer is like a worldwide pandemic kind of <laughs> put a damper on things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's good that at least there was some uh, acknowledgement about the pandemic and and the difficulties on on academics uh, in general. Yeah, I think I think the one thing, and that's also what people identified in the survey is that the universities that made changes in, for example, their tenure and promotion requirements or their evaluations, they made them for everybody. So there's no distinction between those who have a care 
caregiving role there, mm -hmm. parents, as compared to people who do not have that responsibility. So that's, uh, I think that's also what I've seen in, at least for Theodelft, the change in the way the annual evaluation was done was just for everybody. Okay, so it wasn't specific to academic parents. I guess besides the, the, the support group, as you said, at uh, Universidad San Francisco de Quito, in your experience, there wasn't much like directed specifically towards parents or, or other caregivers. One of the things that everybody who's working in the education sector in the Netherlands could do is that when the schools and daycares were closed, they could fill out a form saying we are in a, a critical sector. For example, we have to be teaching. So we need emergency childcare. And then they would still be able to send the child to, to daycare or to school just to like as a childcare solution. Like the school would be closed yeah. or the daycare would be closed, but there's few people that could still send their children if both parents are in a critical sector emergency situation they could still uh, send their children to daycare yeah that was something that they also did here in, in quebec uh, was they allowed if you were part of an essential service they had some childcare solutions and i think that's one of the big reasons why they're trying to push getting back to school in person is for that reason is that a lot of people don't have any other options they need to go work and the kids need to go to school or else it's very difficult to go to work <laughs> And then I wonder if you have any thoughts about going forward for, for academic parents. Is there anything that this pandemic has brought to light that maybe could result in permanent changes or permanent differences in attitude? Do you have any thoughts on that? I'm putting you on the spot with sort of a deep question here. <laughs> yeah, I think it's, a, it's an excellent question. And you cannot separate the pandemic and the struggles that people with caregiving responsibilities have had, which mostly is parents, but can be as well people that take care of elderly or any other caregiving responsibility that somebody has with everything that has happened around diversity and inclusion in uh, not just in academia, but in, in, in many sectors that has gotten a, a much larger amount of attention. So I think all of it is intertwined in looking at really who are the people on our campus and they're not the people that were there in the 19th century anymore. While a lot of the things that are embedded in, in academia in general may still reflect that originally it was the you know white man with uh, from upper class who had servants at home and a, a stay at home wife and that is a very different experience and uh, that also of course comes with this idea of the life of the mind the person who can sit in his office at 12 p.m. with his elbow crutches and maybe a whiskey and 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 having deep thoughts about a paper but. <laughs> my life of the mind doesn't look like that and it, it it doesn't necessarily have to be restricted to people who can live up to that stereotype <laughs> you really you painted a, a vivid a vivid image in my mind of of what of what the stereotype is of, of an academic and how how ridiculous it sounds now mm -hmm, <laughs> mm -hmm. well maybe we're missing the cigar there the cigar yeah of course with like his the boar heads on the wall from his the hunting expeditions mm -hmm, to mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> yeah that that's gone i think <laughs> and mm -hmm. you know and that's a good thing but still a lot of expectations or unwritten rules in in academia mm -hmm. may reflect that the culture at large has been dictated by people who fit that stereotype and i think this this pandemic, the struggle that those with care responsibilities have had, all the work that has been done around diversity and inclusion, I think 
then has opened up the conversation on going forward and saying, okay, now that our university community, and it, I do think a, a university is a community of everybody who is a part of it. And that's uh, also one of the things that we addressed in the paper, then the university is made by its people, the students, the, the faculty, everybody on campus, the the guards, the, the caterers, they're all part of this uh, little town and this little fabric of what makes a, a campus a place where people learn and do research. So I, I do think that has perhaps opened up the discussion to see, okay, if this is our fabric of humans who make up our campus, then how can we support them and what are the necessities? Very well said. So this has been the 44th episode of the BG Talk podcast in which we discussed uh, research that we did on the impact of COVID-19 on academic parents, as well as some uh, personal experiences with being an academic parent during COVID-19. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and we will be back next week with more on PhD life and research mechanics. Thank you so much for listening.